0: Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. I'm going to be joined this week, as always, uh, by my NBC sports partner, Miles Simmons. And this week, we will also be joined uh, by Ray Didinger, the longtime authority on all things Eagles as a sports writer, TV guy, and a talk show host in Philadelphia. Uh, Ray Didinger has recently come out of retirement. And he and I are going to spend a lot of time talking about the, uh, the NFC Championship game and also his view of this year's Eagles. But let's get to this week's big stories. So we're going to dissect the two games we have coming up. The championship game first in Philadelphia between the 49ers and the Eagles. And then the championship game in the AFC, the late afternoon, early evening game uh, in Kansas City at Arrowhead Stadium between the Giant Killers, the Cincinnati Bengals and the Kansas City Chiefs with the hobbled Patrick Mahomes. We're going to do that in the back half of the podcast. We're going to get to a lot of the news of the weekend and the news of this week In the top half of the pod. Among the topics. We're going to dissect the Cowboys. What should they do? Should they make a run at Sean Payton? Uh, The New England Patriots have hired Bill O'Brien. To be their offensive coordinator. And a bit of a security blanket. And parachute to competency. For Mac Jones. At least they hope. Why is it. Late January, and zero head coaches have been hired out of the five openings. I've got some theories. Miles has some theories, and we're going to go over that. Um, What should the Bills do? Four consecutive years of getting dumped out of the playoffs, shy of an AFC championship victory. So... Do you just simply keep banging your head against the wall? Or do you think of, maybe we should make some substantive changes? Who, if anyone, should trade for Aaron Rodgers? We'll get into that. And my mystery of the NFL right now. Does Lou Anarumo have cooties? I mean, what in the world is he doing not getting interviewed for a head coaching job when 9,000 uh, people around the league are taking interviews for head coaching jobs so we're going to get into all those then as I said in the back half we are going to get into the big games of this weekend miles Simmons hello how are you and give me the thing that is really on your cranium today as we record the pod uh it, it, with the elite eight in the background and the final four in in the foreground.
1: All right, Peter. Well, I'm I'm, I'm doing a, I'm a little under the weather today, so I probably sound worse than I feel. So I apologize to my voice for all of the listeners. Although I guess you could be annoyed by my voice every <laughs> okay. single week, regardless. But uh, so I, I'll, I'll take a little bit of a victory lap because I have been saying for weeks and maybe even months that the bills have lapses. Right, the bills have had. Issues with turnovers, specifically Josh Allen, where he's reckless with the football and he's just doing things that you know are not going to be winning things in the playoffs. And look, they were favored by a substantial number heading into this game against Cincinnati. And they looked like, to me, like they have for most of the season. And Cincinnati looked like it has for most of the season. Despite having three subs in on their offensive line, they absolutely dominated. The Buffalo Bills. And it wasn't that much of a surprise to me, even as it may have been that much of a surprise to everyone else. So that's, that's my pat on the back for myself and I might break my arm doing
0: it. Look, you know what I noticed miles, and I wish I had written about this a little bit on Monday, but the thing I noticed about Buffalo late in this season let's just go late in this season and we're going to start with Buffalo. We'll get to the Cowboys right after this but since miles brought it up, let's yeah. get into the bills right now because first of all uh, you know north of Dallas there is no more fervent fan base in the United States <laughs> than the Buffalo Bills and uh, you know it's funny I, I when I was flying home I was in Santa Clara on Sunday night. And when I was when I was flying home uh, on Monday back to New York, I noticed that there was a um, there was a tweet put out by a guy who I follow on Twitter, who I just think is a is a good uh, a good follow from Buffalo. He's a meteorologist named Kevin O'Neill, and he tweeted this yesterday, and I think it on Monday rather, and I think it perfectly sums up the feelings of Buffalo Bills fans, and it is this. I saw my grandparents, my dad, and my uncles all die waiting for a Super Bowl win. I just don't want to be next. And <laughs> oh, and man. I just said, is that the perfect tweet from Western New York right now? Oh. I mean, it's it, 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 it really couldn't be better. But I, I I'll just say this, Miles. Do you remember last year? You know what we were talking about a year ago, basically a year ago this week? We were talking about after the Buffalo Bills, you know, last year beat New England 47-17 and then lost to Kansas City 42-36 when they lost the coin flip to start overtime and then they had this sort of brain lock at the end of regulation in which they allowed seconds. the Chiefs to yeah go almost the length of the field for a field goal in 13 seconds. So so there's a lot there to to think about. But I only bring that up because a year ago at the end of the playoffs even at the end of the Super Bowl I remember Super Bowl at Sofi I wake up the next day, and I start thinking, and I fly home, and I already knew who I was picking to win the Super Bowl. I was picking the the next year. I was picking the Buffalo Bills. And the reason is they scored 83 points in two playoff games, and nobody came close to stopping them. Nobody. Yeah. So I just said, they're going to make a couple changes in the offseason. Obviously, they added Von Miller. That was the big one. And when you add Von Miller, you think, okay, that solves a big issue on the outside, which is how to get significant rush. So, Miles, 83 points last year in eight playoff quarters, plus they never touched the ball in overtime of the ninth period. So, 83 points in eight quarters in the playoffs last year. And what happened this year? 44 points in eight playoff quarters in struggling to beat the Miami Dolphins Mm -hmm. and in a terrible offensive performance putting up 10 points against the Cincinnati Bengals. So, obviously, the Bills are not who we thought they were. So I'm going to give you... The you or the doctor, you've got your prescription pad in front of you. That's the way prescriptions used to be written. Now they're <laughs> logged into a computer and you never even hold it in your hand. But you used to leave a doctor's office with this little blue, rec, uh, you know, square of paper and it you couldn't even read it. But it was what the doctor was giving you to take to the pharmacy, hand it to the pharmacist wait a half hour and here comes your amoxicillin or whatever. But so I'm giving you the prescription pad this morning, Miles Simmons, as we record on Tuesday morning, you haven't had a lot of time to think about how to fix the bills, but I want you right now to fix the Buffalo bills. Well
1: first of all I am old enough to remember when my doctor mom had a prescription pad so it's basically like I'm stealing hers and I'm going to just you know write yeah. <laughs> on it and scribble on it and then you know we can hand it to whatever pharmacist but it's interesting to me because the bill's offense is something that when you have Josh Allen, you figure you should be able to do X, Y, and Z, right? Josh Allen covers up a lot of flaws, just like any elite quarterback covers up a lot of flaws, but you have to be able to cut back on the turnovers, right? He can't be so reckless. And I don't know what the difference is in Brian Dayball and then Ken Dorsey, because obviously Daniel Jones cut back way back, right? On his turnovers this year. And, you know, Josh Allen didn't have Brian Dayball there anymore. So whatever that dynamic is, they've got to try to find that and replicate it and emulate it next year for Buffalo, whether that's with Ken Dorsey as offensive coordinator or somebody else. And that would be a pretty bold move to get rid of Ken Dorsey because this offense was still the second total offense in the league behind only Kansas City. So it's not like they were bad offensively, but they were just a little too inconsistent. And also, you, you've got to get somebody aside from Stephon Diggs who can give you a 1,000 receiving yards. Gabe Davis looked like he was going to be that guy after catching four touchdowns against Kansas City in the postseason. He didn't turn out to be that guy. When you're signing Cole Beasley off the street and you are counting on him yeah. for fairly significant playoff reps, that's not good. Getting Smokey Brown off the street late in the season and counting on him you know, to try to catch a touchdown that turns into an interception against Miami, that's also not good. And you've got to have somebody that can run the ball better than just Josh Allen. I mean, obviously, Josh Allen is going to be the guy that you want to have the football in the postseason in the red zone. And him running QB power is about as unstoppable as possible. But he should not be always the leading rusher for the Buffalo Bills. So those are a few things, at least offensively, Peter, that I think about. And I'm thinking, all right, how. Can Buffalo get more consistent offensively? Because they can be as explosive as anybody, but it's about being able to sustain drives and bludgeon people kind of like Cincinnati did. And that's not something that they've been all that great at, at least in the last few weeks of this season.
0: I'll tell you a couple of things struck me um, this year versus last year when I really tried to think about, why the Bills were so good last year. Number one, Josh Allen was uh, up against significantly more pressure, especially late in this season. And I'm not saying his offensive line is weak, but his offensive line wasn't nearly as impenetrable as it was late last season. That's Mm -hmm. number one. Number two, uh, I think when your offense... Is either struggling or not, simply not as explosive as it was. I think, as a coaching staff, I think Sean McDermott has to significantly consider changing his offensive approach or his approach to game management in offensive football. By that, I just mean that let's take two specific instances. Okay, you're late in the second quarter. I don't know. I'm going to guess. There's like a minute to go. Uh, you've got a fourth and ten on the Cincinnati 41. Mm. Okay, And Sean McDermott opted to punt. Okay, Now, let's just say for the sake of argument that he opts to go for it and he misses it and the Bengals go down and kick a field goal. You know, and and look, I think a lot of us would say, man, they might have been better off punting. In this particular case, I didn't think that, and the reason I didn't think that when I was watching the game, I said I would have gone for it right there. There's yeah. a very simple reason that you're not getting anything done offensively. You've got no consistency. You got no rhythm. You've got to try to jolt your offense into waking up you've got to get the crowd back into the game you know to me it is a white flag surrender and a prayer that you know the Bengals if you put them back at their 10 are not going to be able to uh, get into field goal position but when your offense isn't playing well but you know that your quarterback is inventive can make stuff happen might even be able to scramble for it I would Definitely gone for it there. There was one other instant instance. There's 11 seconds left in the third quarter. And this is a a much more difficult thing to accept. And at the time, I wasn't thinking this, Miles. Okay? But now, in retrospect, watching, you know, seeing what happened the rest of the game, this, I thought, was really, really suspect. Fourth and two, 11 seconds to go in the third quarter. You are at your own 20. So no one can blame you, no one, right? if you punt the ball. But you're down 24 to 10. So you basically are in a world of hurt right now. You might only get the ball twice more in this game. Mm -hmm. And to me there's a fire drill right now going on or there, excuse me, there's a fire alarm going off in your building right now. It is urgent. You've got to make something happen. So arguably you could say that, you know, it's fourth and two uh, you're at your own 20 and there's no way you go for it. The reason in this uh, in this position I definitely would have gone for it is very simple. Are you telling me Josh Allen the best fullback/quarterback and and I don't say fullback with disrespect. I say right. it with respect. I yes. think he could Tom Rathman a defense uh you know to make 2 yards. You know you put you put the call in the headset. Hey Josh you know, you've got to make this first down. And whatever it, yes. it is, a draw, you know, an end sweep, something. You know, misdirection, I don't know. But in my opinion, right here is when you put Josh Allen in the shotgun and say, dude, make two yards. Yeah. And, and again, look, you're down by two touchdowns. There's a good chance you're only going to get the ball back twice. So if you punt knowing what the Bengals have done in this game and, and how they possess the ball, you know that almost the best you can do if everything goes great from here on out, the best you can do is tie. I mean, I am going for this and I'm not even thinking about it.
1: Well, and it's something that we've seen from other coaches, you know, and, and because at fourth and two, especially is one of those plays where you can say, let's get, one of our best two-point plays, right? Because that's exactly the situation that you would have. You need two yards to get into the end zone. You need two yards to get past the sticks. And I agree with you. Josh Allen getting two yards. You said, Tom Rathman. I would have gone Mike Allstott, right? That's one that I yeah, just okay. believe that, he, <laughs> that he's going to be able to do, right? Because he's that big of a guy. He's that, you know, he's that powerful of a runner. It's one of those situations where you put the ball in his hands and you say, as you just said, Peter, Josh, go get it. And I believe that he would have been able to do it because there's only so much that you can do defensively to set up for that because there's so much that you can run off of it, you know? So that is one place where I definitely agree with you. It's just sometimes you need to be that aggressive. And I was talking to one of my best friends who is from Buffalo about this yesterday, and he is as distraught as one would expect. And I actually, I watched the game last year with him with Kansas city And this guy, I'm telling you, was as excited as can be. Let's go, Buffalo. You know, we're going to the Super Bowl. We're going to wax the Bengals. It's this, it's that. And then, of course, 13 seconds happened. And then he was silent for, you know, another hour after the game. But what was interesting about it is that you talk to people from Buffalo, and it's like, man, we want to be a little bit more aggressive. And I don't know if it's because Sean McDermott has the defensive background as a head coach versus offensive, but sometimes it feels like, When you have a defensive head coach, they're more reactive, you know, as opposed to dictating when you've got an offensive head coach. And this is me being very broad stroke, and I know that we can pick this apart. But I I feel like that's kind of what you're getting at, Peter, when you're talking about changing some of that offensive philosophy where it's got to be, no, we're going to attack right here. It's fourth and two, and we're in minus territory, but we're going to attack because we believe in what we've got. And I I just think that, yeah, Sean McDermott could use a little bit more of that specifically as, you know, the Buffalo Bills go into the 2023 season.
0: So the one thing about the Bills right now is that, you know, Miles, they've been really on a high for the last two to three years. They have Mm -hmm. been the team on the upswing, and they have been the hot team, Never has heard a discouraging word. Uh, Sean McDermott is the steely guy who's the head coach who, you know, solves all the little problems. Everybody respects him. Brandon Bean, the general manager. You really thought that the money for Von Miller was too much, but, hey, Brandon Bean, he's done a great job in setting this team up. In Bean we trust. Well, now you're looking at them and you're saying, hmm, you know, I think you need to be bolder on offense, which I believe you need to figure out why uh, Gabe Davis was an average player this year. When at the end of last year, and I remember going to training camp, and I thought that Gabe Davis was going to be two, three, four, five, you know, like the, the second, third, fourth, fifth best number two receiver in football. Right. And it turns out he was probably 21st, you know, and it just, okay. So what went wrong with Gabe Davis? I think you need right now, if you're the bills, you need to say we're bringing in two receivers this year, the same way we spent last year on Von Miller, uh, whether it be in trade or free agency, we need to go get a premier receiver period. Okay, that's number one. Number two, I think it is time, if you're the Buffalo Bills, that you've had a spate of injuries in the defensive backfield. You've got to get younger. You've got to get – I was thinking the perfect guy for the Buffalo defense. You know who it is, Miles? Jaquan Brisker. Mm -hmm. You know, the the rookie from the Chicago Bears, the rookie safety, Uh who is – A a good cover guy, and he is a hard hitter. You know, he is their Talanoa Hufanga. And, you know, that's what, if I'm the Bills, I want an enforcer safety this offseason. Your safety's just been getting hurt a lot. You know, I love Micah Hyde and and Jordan Poyer. I love them. Who doesn't love them? They've been great. But physical safeties in the NFL have shelf lives. And you've got to start thinking about the next iteration of that safety group. All right. So if I'm the Bills, I'm thinking receiver. I'm thinking DBs. And I'm also thinking very seriously right now, if I'm, if I'm the Bills, I am thinking of philosophically changing on offense. Those yeah. would be, you know, to be just a little bit bolder. You you not only are going to add to your receiver core, you're probably going to start being a little a little more liberal in your decision-making process in-game.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think you make some great points there. You know, it's just one of those deals where you feel like Buffalo, where they were, as you are saying, on the upswing. Now it's where, uh-oh, you know, is Buffalo really going to be able to stay atop the elite teams in the AFC where you've got Kansas city, you've got Cincinnati. And we know now, I think without a doubt that those are the top two teams right now in the AFC. Right. And and there's an argument to be made that Cincinnati really is more the standard bearer than Kansas city. But I think Buffalo now you've got Miami, which we know depending on what the quarterback situation is going to be, they should still be in the mix next year. The Jets defense. That's good. We don't know what the hell their quarterback situation is going to be. Is Bill O'Brien going to be able to fix Mac Jones? You know, uh, they could be, there's an argument that the bills stronghold on the AFC East might not be as strong as we thought it was going to be after last year's postseason for the next, you know, five years. Yeah. So it's time to be a little bit bold to make sure that you stay where you need to stay because For all the talk that we made about Kansas City last year and them potentially slipping off the top of the AFC West, they made the moves that they had to in order to stay up there, right? Trading away Tyreek Hill, bringing in a guy like Justin Reed, talk about safeties, you know, to replace Tyron Matthew. Those things worked out. Chris Jones plays about as well as he could in this in this particular season. So there are things you can do to stay bold, to stay atop. But the Bills are going to have yeah. to do them, and they're going to have to be right on every single move they make.
0: It's, it's like I said in my column on Monday. This is the first time I've watched the Bills in a long time where this thought comes into my head. I'm watching the sands of time go through the hourglass.
2: <laughs> I'm not
0: saying that their window has closed or is right. closing, but I am saying when you go from being the odds on favorite to win the super bowl to a decisive loser in the divisional game next year and, or the next year and in the wild card round you almost get beat by a third string quarterback you've got issues yeah so that's our dissection of the bills i want to go to the dallas cowboys and miles i'm at the game and late in the fourth quarter after that final play, I'm scurrying toward the press box elevator. After watching that last play of the game, and I just thought the Cowboys are not very smart. <laughs> and you know there are two plays late. It's not only the last play of the game where you have Ezekiel Elliott just get absolutely crushed by uh, Aziz Al Shakir, uh, Al Shire, rather. Uh, the linebacker of San Francisco, the underrated linebacker of San Francisco. And, you know, it isn't only that, but I thought to myself, okay, if you're, a, you know, because I saw Ezekiel Elliott go to the center of the field, and right at that point, the ref, uh, call you know, puts goes on his mic, you know, number 21 is not an eligible receiver. 21 is not an eligible receiver. Right. And so... You know, I say to myself okay right I want to explain I want you to explain to me why that is the smartest use of your resources where uh, you know one of your five guys who could catch the ball in this case is not an eligible receiver now he could obviously get a lateral because anybody right. can get a lateral but I thought you know right at that moment why would you why would you make him? on this freak play. Look, that's got a half of a percent chance of working anyway. So that's not the biggest deal. But you know what else really bothered me down the stretch of this game? And everybody is going to think, well, you're going to say, you know, Dak Prescott throwing it to the other guys all the time. (laughs) Dak Prescott throwing a pick six that luckily for him was dropped by Dre Greenlaw with 45 seconds to go. That if he catches it, the narrative after the game is not only man Dak played a crap game too. The narrative is we got to get Dak the hell out of here. Uh, you know who would make that dumb throw uh, late in the game? But here was the other thing that just bothered me. I think 51 seconds to go or whatever, and Cavante Turpin, the punt returner, who made this roster out of training camp out of nowhere by returning two punts or kicks for touchdowns against the Chargers in a preseason game. That's how he made this team. Yes. And I, he, he fair catches a ball with no one really close to him. Mm-hmm. And I just thought to myself, dude, touchdowns don't invent themselves mm. in the last minute of a playoff game. You need a miracle. You need a playmaker. That's you. That's yes. you, Cavante Turpin. That's you. And you fair caught the ball at the nine-yard line? Yeah. I mean, that was insane, in my opinion. And that's, I just walked away. The Cowboys are not a smart football team. They're a really good defensive team. They played great their last eight quarters in Tampa and then in San Francisco. They are not a smart football team.
1: And, and, you know, I don't know if Turpin was told to fair catch the ball to try to give the offense. If he was, then John Fossil ought
0: to be fired.
1: Right, exactly. (laughs) I mean, you know, and it's a shame because I think you're right, Peter. You just look at the decisions that they make consistently and you think, well, that's not something a smart football team would do. We can say the same thing going back a year to the way that they played the end of the game against San Francisco at home in the wild card round. What were yeah. we saying after that? Man, that's something a dumb football team would do. You don't know how to do the operation right so that you get the ball to the official so he can spot it. I mean, this is just not something that you see from good smart football teams that know how to execute well and execute consistently. So it's just, it's one of those things where you look at Dallas and you're like, man, you see the potential, but why is it that they make these stupid mistakes? I mean, why is it that Ezekiel Elliott is snapping the football in that last play? Like you said, very, very low percentage play anyway. But when you look at that, what was the plan? Was the plan to lateral it back to Zeke? What, why are you assuming that nobody's yeah. going to pass rush him? I, mean, I don't understand what's going on there. Why aren't you throwing the ball at least outside where there are some blockers, and then maybe you start lateraling it there? I'm, I'm looking at the plan. Like, what, what is the plan here? This doesn't make any sense because it should be a hook and you, lateral. Miles, what, what's going
0: on? Hey, Miles, you know what else? You know what else I was thinking when he lined up to snap? I, I, I just thought to myself. This flashed through my head. I just said, okay, last play of the season, most likely. Yeah, Desperate time. So has Ezekiel Elliott ever snapped a football in a game? Right. As long as he has been at Ohio State or with the Cowboys. You're putting the la- I-, I would. I would bet right now, I'd bet it's 10 to 1 he has never snapped a football in a college or pro game in whatever years that would have been, like 10, 11 years. And I'm thinking to myself, you're really doing this right now? You're really – and he snapped the ball fine. But that just went through my mind. This guy's never done this before. And on the last play of the game, you're asking him to do it? Last play of your season? I just – God, there was so much wrong with the end of that game for the Cowboys that really bothers me. So, Miles – and I, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I'm I'm going to ask no, you: Does it point. does it rise to the level of giving a gold watch to either Kellen Moore, or Mike McCarthy, or both, and bringing in Sean Payton and Joe Lombardi, or whoever it would be, to try to you know sort of recalibrate Dak Prescott and this offense?
1: Ah, uh, I don't think Jerry Jones wants to do that. I mean, I from what he said, right. And Jerry Jones says things and then he does things. And so it, it is what it is, but I, I don't feel like it's quite that bad, even though it's very concerning. I mean, the Cowboys were still a good team. You know, they, they made it to the final eight, which is, is admirable. And, you know, San Francisco to me has been a better team. Um, but yeah, the late game execution is problematic. And I, I, I don't know if it's, We've got to go. It's not just the execution, I should say. It's the planning. Late game planning is also problematic, and it's been problematic. And I, I don't know how quite fixable that is, but I would try to fix it. Although I know that Jerry yeah. Jones would love to hire Sean Payton too. Uh, it's, yeah.
0: That's what that's what is so tough about this. You're Jerry Jones. How old are you, 82 years old? I forget. He's oh, somewhere in that range. And again, look – Jerry Jones doesn't have nine lives. He has 19 lives. Um, So I'm not predicting any ill to befall him. But at some point, he's got to start thinking, I don't have many more of these rodeos left. And so he has always wanted to hire Sean Payton. Um, And I just wonder, this is the only time, most likely, that he's ever going to have the chance. So what does he do? And that is a very, very big question right now. And the other part of that question is, I'm sure he's going to have some people in his front office saying, listen, Jerry, you're going to have to give whatever the Cowboys have, the 25th pick in the draft. I I don't know what it'll Mm. be, but they're going to have to give their, their first round pick plus a jillion dollars to go get Sean Payton. Do you really want to do that? Do you think he can recreate what he did in New Orleans and he can be a huge uh, asset to to Dak Prescott? So those are the interesting questions I have. And I agree with you. I don't think he's going to do it. But if I were him in his life position, I'd have to be thinking very hard today about the possibility of doing it. Okay. Yeah. I want to ask you five coach openings, and I didn't realize this until researching this a little bit on the plane on the way home because I said, why have there been no coaches hired so far? And last year, the first coach was hired actually late in the week or the commitment was made late in the week of the two championship games. On January 27th, the Chicago Bears agreed to terms with Matt Eberflus. I think he was announced the following week, if I'm not mistaken. But they agreed to terms with Matt Eberflus, and that sort of started the dominoes. But the weird thing is it didn't really start the dominoes because Matt Eberflus was a serious candidate, really down-to-the-end candidate, in only one place, and that was Chicago. So I think the way I look at this right now is that maybe it's not all that weird that uh, we, we don't have a coach yet. But I do think there's a couple of things at play in this that have, made, have sort of slowed down the process. And I'll give you, actually, there's three things in no particular order. Okay, two of the jobs are not incredibly desirable. One is Arizona. Uh, you know, you question whether they're going to spend money you question the quarterback's commitment and whether he's good enough to take you to the promised land. Um, I don't know that Arizona is a really desirable place. Similarly, in a different way, you know, Houston is an odd opening because you would think that a team that's going to be able to pick any quarterback almost that it wants with the second pick in the draft and, and all that, you think uh, that, and, and you've got cap room. Uh, they've been losing for a long time, so they've been accumulating, you know, some not a long time, but the last couple of years, they've been accumulating some picks who are good players, particularly in the defensive secondary. You start to think, okay, good job. They fired their coach after one year, two years in a row. Mike Sando wrote in The Athletic yesterday, well, you know, because they fired their coach two years in a row after one year, now you figure that this guy is really going to have a long rope. And I forget exactly what he wrote. And I emailed him and I said, I'm not sure I would think that. I, I would think this ownership is not smart. And, and you know, w- what is Nick Casario hiring these guys when, uh, anyway. But, yeah. so... I think those two jobs are, you know, kind of suspect. So, so that's that's one of the things. I mean, do you really want to take the Arizona job? Do you really want to take the Houston job? I mean, those are the kind of interesting questions that I think some of these candidates are asking. Here's one other thing: people are being more deliberate in looking at coaches. You know, the uh, the uh, Indianapolis Colts. I think the number is up to twelve now, um, and I, I think it's even and, higher. And 13, these 14. are not just, yeah, these are not just quick interviews either. I was told because you know yesterday I wrote in my column Monday that I I think it is infuriating that Dan Quinn. It's not Quinn's fault. He is simply doing what. The rules say this is what you have to do. Dan Quinn last Friday did two interviews. Now, the, the Dallas Cowboys got back to Dallas on, you know, at 3 a.m. Tuesday after playing a Monday night playoff game in Tampa. okay? Then you've got a short week before you've got to go to Santa Clara, California, before you fly to San Jose. Uh, and I don't know whether they went Friday or Saturday, but whenever they did go, you know it's a short week you got wo- you got almost one and a half days less because instead of your game on sun on Saturday or Sunday being over during the day, your game is not over until midnight uh, Monday and you're not back in, in your home market until 3 a.m. Yeah So he does two interviews and one of the interviews I'm told. The Indianapolis Colts interview was over five hours. Jeez. I mean, it is crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy that, you know, if I'm, I'm just telling you this, if I'm Mike McCarthy, if I'm Jerry Jones, I am, I'm telling the league this off season, you simply must change your rules. These rules stink. Don't allow coaches to be interviewed or hired till after the Super Bowl, and I know all the bad teams are going to say, "Whoa, wait a minute, We don't get a head start. We need a head start to catch up with all these good teams. Hey, go scout your players, you know, And then after the season, you'll get to choose a coach. I just think it's the craziest. man, I don't get upset about a lot of things. That really, the fairness factor about the unfairness factor really upsets me about that yeah
1: well i mean and then you have D'Amico ryan's who reportedly canceled a couple of interviews basically for that same reason because it's like and i i I got through two of these and i I, my mind's not where it needs to be and so then he's like yeah i'm not doing this these two interviews today and i'm gonna concentrate on where my mind needs to be which is with the 49ers defense and i frankly really understand that because I mean, Peter, you know, we've all been through job interviews like that takes up a lot of space in your mind because you are trying to put your best foot forward. You're trying to be your best self, you know, and how can you really do that if you know that where your responsibility lies is somewhere else? Right. And and so, yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, it's just it's very unfair for coaches who are employed and who are trying to win a Super Bowl ring with their current team to then say, all right, let me turn this part of my brain off and let me be over here and let me try to put my best foot forward. If you're a team and you want one of these guys, which you should, they are obviously successful, why would you want to split their brains like that? You're know, you not going to get the best of Dan Quinn or D'Amico Ryans when they are trying to prepare for a really, really big playoff game. It's just, yeah, it's one of those things. It's just so difficult.
0: All right, Miles, lightning round. You've okay. got thirty seconds to answer these. We got two topics left, but we need to get to um, our interview with Ray Didinger from Philadelphia uh, in the middle of our pod. Who wants Aaron Rodgers? Do you think? And would you pay a significant amount of money? Not as much as you would think. It's basically forty-eight million on the cap over the next two years, which is certainly not cost prohibitive if you believe in Aaron Rodgers. But would you also be willing to pay multiple high draft choices for him, which I'm sure is where the Packers are going to start. But do you want Aaron Rodgers? And if so, what team would you be? I mean, who wants Aaron Rodgers out there?
1: Uh, Las Vegas, Tampa, if Brady leaves, um... Yeah. I don't know. I, I just, Aaron Rodgers can still get it done, but it's, it would take a lot for me to believe that, okay, you know, this is a guy that's really committed to it and he's got to go off and he's got to find himself and figure that out first. But if I'm green Bay, I mean, I still want him back. I don't know. I, it That's a tough one, Peter, for me.
0: What an incredibly sweet irony would be if it was the New York jets. Oh, yeah. 2008, Brett Favre, <laughs> he yeah. leaves for the New York Jets. 15 years later, exactly, Aaron Rodgers leaves for the New York Jets. And I would bet that neither of them got the Jets. I mean, we know Favre didn't. And I would bet that Rodgers wouldn't get him over the hump either. But in this particular case, I follow the trail of desperate owner. And mm. Woody Johnson's desperate right now. And I think he would like to deliver Aaron Rodgers to his fan base. Last question. The Lou Anarumo mystery. It's your gut feeling why there have been 9,466 assistant coaches in the NFL get interviewed for head coaching jobs. And the defensive coordinator who arguably has done the best job of any defensive coordinator in the last month of this season, is totally untouched. Theories? I, I,
1: I, yeah. I would even say in the last two years, you know, that, that Lou Anarumo has done, who's done a better job than Lou Anarumo when you look at how the Bengals got to the Super Bowl and then what they've done this year. Uh, I, It's probably unfair, but the first thing that comes to my mind is Vic Fangio. Longtime NFL defensive assistant, they hire him in Denver, and it doesn't work out that well. And I, I think it's a little unfair, but that would be my instinct as to why Lou Romo has not gotten the job. And because when you look at him, you see, oh, what's the difference between him and Vic Fangio? And that's not fair.
0: I, I guess my my only point would be that. Because word travels fast on the grapevine out there. I mean, somebody out there must be saying either he didn't interview well or whatever that, you yeah. know, the argument about Eric B enemy over the years, well, you know, he didn't interview well or, uh, you know, know what whatever. Uh, and so that's the only thing I can think of. I didn't, you know, it surprised me so much and I was sitting there Saturday night Uh, or I'm sorry, um, Sunday on the airplane going from Philly to uh, San Jose. And I, that really, really occurred to me. I did zero reporting on it, so I don't know, but I think it's madness. And, and look, uh, you know, Zach Taylor uh, talked to Albert Breer after the Bengals win in Buffalo. And as Breer described it, uh, that Taylor was really frustrated with the fact that his assistants are not getting the respect around the league that a lot of assistants are, so anyway, we'll leave that there. Um, I, I would I, we're going to go to our uh, conversation or mid pod conversation with um, Ray Dinger, the longtime and very well respected voice of Philadelphia sports, longtime sports writer, worked for NFL Films, um, and he's just come out of retirement recently. Uh, to uh, capture whatever happens with the Eagles in this playoff process. So, we're going to get to Ray Didinger and hear what he has to say about this edition of the Philadelphia Eagles. Back on the podcast with Ray Didinger. So, Ray, uh, for those in Philadelphia who said, well, wait a second, Ray Didinger walked away. He's living the high life now and uh what what is he doing back in my living room and what is he doing back on tv and nbc sports philadelphia and talking to angelo cataldi on wip why why we missed you ray but but what happened so tell us what happened
2: this eagle season happened peter i mean if the eagles have been four and 13 um instead of 14 and three uh, I'd be laying on the couch eating Doritos right now uh, but um, yeah it was so it was so obvious by midseason that this was a very special year uh, and that this team was on a historic trajectory that um, NBC Sports Philly <clears throat> contacted me and said listen um, this team's going to the playoffs would you be willing to come back and be part of our postseason coverage and you know the kind of season it's been. It was a little hard to say no. So <clears throat> I checked it over with my wife. We had the conversation. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to wind up running afoul of, uh, you know, the retirement of the law <laughs> the way Tom and Giselle did. Uh, and uh, but she said, "Hey, listen, you know, I I I figured this was going to happen. I was fully expecting it. I understand this team has a real chance to go to the Super Bowl. So why not be a part of it?" So well, here great. I,
0: Here's the question for you: What happens if they win at all? And then next year in December they're eleven and one, and they call again. What are you going to do? And what is your wife going to say?
2: I'm not sure my wife answers at that point. I think (laughs) I I think she I think she gave me this one this one final dispensation. You got the papal dispensation for one postseason. I think she I think she gave me one more lap around
0: the track, but I better not take it beyond that.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Ray, you know, I there's something about you that people should know. Now I have to know I, I have to ask because I'm not sure it is still true. Is it true that you do not own a cell phone? That is true. Ray, come on, it's 2023. You need a cell phone. No, I've
2: I've gone this far without one, Peter. I think I'm I'm okay with it. I've sort of made my peace with it. But it is people find it hard to believe. I mean, literally, they, they, no, you're kidding, right? No, I,
0: I really don't have a cell phone, <laughs> but and you so, know what? I've, I've, ma- I've managed remarkably well. Yeah. So, you know, let's say that you're somewhere and you need to make a call. And Ray, by the way, there are no more pay phones or there yeah, aren't many. I found, many. I found
2: that. I found that out.
0: I found yeah. Out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and plus look, Peter and Ann King do not have a landline in Brooklyn. All we have are these little things right here. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have a we do we do have a landline, and you you'd be
2: amazed. I should tell you it's still it still works.
0: <laughs> All right, Ray. So in our time, the thing I really was interested in talking to you, I am fascinated with two things on these Philadelphia Eagles. One is Jalen Hurts. Um, I've had two conversations in my life with Jalen Hurts. The first was after the Jacksonville game this year. And I keep coming back to this. And I've told this story a bunch of times. Uh, I said to him toward the end of our little 12 minute conversation, man, because I knew his father had coached him right. in Texas. And I said, man, your dad must be so proud of you. He's got to be bursting. And, you know, and then and he said, yeah, coach Hurts is, is happy. And I said, wait a second coach Hurts. He said, yeah, I I mean, I keep it official, you know, (laughs) and I found it so interesting that he had so much respect for his father as a coach that he wouldn't say, hey, dad, what are we calling on this snap? Mm -hmm. You know, he was coach Hurts. But my second conversation with him was this past Saturday night, as the clock struck 12 after the Eagles um, tattooed the Giants. And what impressed me a lot about that is not one particular thing that he said, but it was just the whole idea that, and Ray, his, his shoulder hurts. You know, his, his shoulder is not healthy. No. But, but, and he made it very clear to me that he has to will himself to do this. But what really interested me, we all saw the second play of the game against the Giants on the second play of the game, he threw a ball, a perfect spiral that was thrown on a dime Mm -hmm. to Devontae Smith, 45 yards in the air, gain of 40. And the throw was absolutely perfect. And I asked him about it. And he told me that I have not made a throw that far one time in (laughs) practice since I got hurt. And so, look, he's not well. And but there's not anything he's going to do about it. That's sh- the. And again, I don't mean I. I hate to declare that Jalen Hurts is some incredible hero or he's a Rooster Cogburn type. Look <laughs> that up, kids. But I don't mean to do that. But what I mean to say is, this is the most important thing in his world, and he'll be damned if he's going to get arthroscopic shoulder surgery and miss the most important games. Of his life right but give me your impression so far of what you've seen of this kid jalen hurts
2: uh i think you got it peter i I think you've described him very well uh that's that's the guy that i've seen that's the guy that i've uh i've witnessed and you're right i mean everybody it's amazing how coming out of uh, out of the game the other night uh people are saying oh he's he's 100 he looks great and it's pretty clear no he's not But um, in his post-game press conference, someone asked him how, you know, do you feel good? I mean, physically? And he said, good enough, which to me was very telling. I mean, he didn't say, yeah, I'm 100%. I'm fine. He didn't try to fake it. I mean, clearly he's playing playing through something, same way that Lane Johnson is playing through something. It's pretty serious. But it's that time of the year they are both that fiercely competitive. They know what's at stake, and they know what they mean to their team so I thought it was Evan a chain stack and, and Nick Sirianni were very smart in the way they attacked the Giants the other night in that in that first offensive possession they showed him a little bit of everything you know they, yeah. they let him see his arm early that he could get it down the field they let him run just a little bit that he was willing to run the RPO stuff they hit it between the tackles that first possession that first 80 play 75 yards to a touchdown more than just giving him a seven point lead it, it sent a message to Wink Martindale that you know, hey, these guys are playing with the whole playbook right now. So yeah. we're going to have to deal with that for Great the rest point. of the game.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. What do you think the 49ers do that on defense that could present this offense some problems?
2: Um, I just think that the structure of it and the design of this offense is so different than what anybody else is running right now, that it's a challenge – even for the number one defense, which the 49ers yeah. are, and, and they are, and they are for good reason. They're that good, but playing, the, they haven't played these guys yet. Uh, and when they can deploy all of their weapons and call pretty much anything they want to play, um, they're a real challenge. Now, I mean, teams have tried to spy hurts. They've tried the spy thing. And I guess you could do that with Werner if you wanted to, but, um, but if you take him, if you give him that assignment and you take him away from the other stuff, you know, then they're going to beat you with their with their straight up running game. Then that, then they're going to hit you with Sanders and Gainwell and those guys. If you don't do that uh, and you respect the other backs, then Hertz is going to RPO you and he's going to move the chains, yeah. move the chains, move the chains. And if you decide, OK, now we've got to stop the run altogether and you try to single up on the outside, you know, then Smith and Brown are going to beat you or, or Goddard will down the seam. So, I mean, they have – this is a really good offense, really good, well-coached, well-designed, uh, and with – and we haven't even talked about the offensive line, which tackle-to-tackle tackle I think is probably the best in the NFL. So even for a defense that's as good as the 49ers, you know, fast, physical, very assignment-specific, the 49ers are good. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say they're not, but as good as they are – they're going to have the biggest. This is certainly going to be the biggest challenge they've faced because yeah. these guys are really good.
0: You know what I loved about what the Eagles did the other day? Look, there was a lot made that Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley didn't play in week 18. So, hey, you better look out. But the other thing about that game is that Kayvon Thibodeau, Leonard Williams, uh, and Dexter Jackson did not play Dexter Lawrence, rather did not play in that game either. And what was so good about the Eagles the other day is that they were collectively a non-factor in this game. Dexter Lawrence is a first-team All-Pro player on my team this year. Mm -hmm. And it was the first game all season where he did not pressure the quarterback. And, I mean, after watching what he did to Kirk Cousins last week, with eight pressures or hits or sacks, it was it was an incredible performance. And that's why to me, I I think a huge part of this game is going to be whether the 49ers back end can hold up. And that has been something that's been uh that has been tough to watch at times this year. Uh, people have made plays deep on this team, so right. we'll see. But I think you're right. I think the The fact that this line is so good and that Jeff Stoutland, the offensive line coach, seems to have an answer for what anybody can throw at him. I I think that that holds the 49ers in good stead this weekend.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you, Peter. And it's it's funny you mentioned Dexter Lawrence because um, when I was doing the preview stuff last week, somebody asked me about the key matchup, what I considered the key matchup of the game. Uh, And I said, jason kelsey against dexter lawrence um because for it, it, first of all it's a fascinating matchup just the disparity in their size yeah. uh you know i mean um i mean i made the reference i said that dexter lawrence is the size of the chrysler building and jason kelsey looks like a waffle house i mean that's yeah. kind of the way you match them up and you know kelsey's 35 and lawrence is 25 i mean you would think all the advantage would go to lawrence uh but it was just another example of what a a a remarkable player, Jason Kelsey is. I mean, he's, uh, I mean, here he is. I mean, a lot of people didn't even think he was going to come back and play this year. Uh, I will tell you, having seen every game, Peter, I think this was his best year. I think he played as good as he has been up to this point. We're talking about a five-time pro bowler. Uh, I think he was better this year than he has ever been. Uh, And I don't know that he was ever better than he was the other night. I mean, you're right. He took Dexter Lawrence, who was playing extremely well. Uh, who was just out of this world in the game in Minnesota uh, and just took him out of the game. And and not with getting a whole lot of help from the guards either. I mean, Jason Kelsey took a lot of one-on-one assignments and won them all. So when we talk about how good this offensive line is, yeah, they are. From tackle to tackle, they're very good. But make no mistake, it starts at center. And Kelsey right now is as good as it gets.
0: I hope you're still alive when – Jason Kelsey and Travis Kelsey put on g- gold jackets in Canton? I hope so, too. I mean, I'm how, gonna how amazing. There. I'm going to be there for that one. <laughs> first, of all, first of all, how amazing would it be if somehow, some way, it happened in the same year? That would be really cool. But Jason Kelsey has convinced me this year. Look, I think we probably know that, I mean, Travis Kelsey is putting up numbers that no tight end in history has ever put up. And the way that Jason is playing right now, he's convinced me this year that he's going to the hall of fame Yeah, and it'll be amazing. And you know, that, what else is interesting about that? You know, they grew up 38 miles from the doorstep of the pro football hall of fame. Yeah. in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. And that will be one of the coolest days. First, when either get in either gets in, but if both of them were to get in at the same time it would be pretty incredible i you know i don't know i found myself thinking about that in a little bit of a sentimental way i actually asked jason about it a few weeks ago and and he goes well i have thought of that <laughs> so anyway i just i do hope it happens cuz it'll be exceedingly well deserved well well and well it should i i
2: agree with you i mean i i don't throw that one of the things that bothers me, Peter, is how quick people are to refer to guys who are playing as future Hall of Famers. Oh, I hate it. I hate Wait it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, fellas. Yeah. You know, th- that's not your decision to make, okay? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. we say it. I, I, I watch NFL games on TV. I hear like five or six guys mention as future Hall of Famers. Really? Honest? Yeah. But I will tell you this having seen Kelsey's career from the jump, um, no question in my mind, he's in. I mean, I thought a couple years ago, trying to think down the road, could he be a Hall of Famer? In terms of the way he played, he reminded me an awful lot of Kevin Mawai. Uh, and Kevin Mawai is in. And they do a lot of the same kinds of things. They're able to trap. They're able to pull. They're able to get to the second level. Um, and, and this is by no means trying to diminish Kevin Mawai, who I think was a hell of a player.
0: But Kelsey's better than he was. See, uh, I, 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 I would, I'll compare him to somebody else. I'd compare him to Mike Webster. Because, look, obviously, Mike Webster was 252 pounds, and that's incredibly light compared to what centers are today. I get that. But that was also two generations ago. So that's different. But the reason why they remind me of each other is that I think they play the same. They both play with incredible leverage. They're both very strong, even though they're not the biggest guys on the field. And they're both the leaders of their teams. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. The other day I stopped by um, Kelsey's locker and I said to him, you know how sometimes, you know, in this job, Ray, because I knew I, I had hoped that I was going to be able to get three or four questions into Jalen Hurts. And I said, <laughs> to uh, I said to Kelsey, I said, hey, I think I'm going to talk to Hurts. Give me one question to ask. Jalen Hurts give me give me one thing and he thinks and he goes man and I mean I really stumped him because he said I I can't think of anything but he said I'll tell you this said of all the guys I've played with he said that I would really define Jalen Hurts with one word stoic Mm -hmm. and he goes I don't know what that does for you but whatever it's so I ended up writing that, but I, I get, I really get the feeling that Kelsey's been good for Hertz, but even if Kelsey were a knucklehead, um, you know, Hertz would figure out a way to handle it because that's who he is and that's what he does. Yeah, Um,
2: Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, Kelsey was a sixth round draft pick. And so when he walked into the Eagles training camp that first day, nobody thought much about him. And I remember talking to Howard Mudd, who was then the Eagles offensive line coach, uh, and asking him about Kelsey. Uh, and he said, he's going to be starting for us by opening day. I said, really? I mean, six-round pick? And they had a center named Jamal Jackson, who was a pretty yeah. good player, who had been the center on the Super Bowl team. Uh, and he said, no, this kid, he said, this kid can do things that nobody else can do. Uh, and he said, as as he learns and gains experience, he's only going to get better and better. So we want to get him on the field. And that was it. He started playing as a rookie and he's been in there ever since. He's remarkable story. And you know, Peter, he owns the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean yeah. he is I mean, he could he can walk down the street here and, and run for mayor and win in a landslide. The people here love the guy.
0: Yeah, well they should. Hank Fraley to Jamal Jackson to Jason Kelsey, right?
2: Yes. That is that's yeah. the
0: lineage. Yeah. And somebody and somebody
2: asked me, is he the greatest center in Eagles history? And I really had to think about it. I would still defer to Ben Narek because I think Ben is one of the all time great players that's ever played in the NFL. Yeah. Uh, and, but I mean, th- this, is the closest, this is the first time I've ever had to think about it. That's People easy. would ask me before, and I'd say, no, no, it's Ben Narek for sure. This was the first time I had, I had to go, hmm. And so that tells you how far along Jason Kelsey's come. I just yeah. hope he keeps playing because he's, he's great. He's a great player, he's a tremendous team leader, and he's fun to watch
0: yeah yeah um so i'll ask you one other question america doesn't know anything about nick sirianni and here he is four quarters from walking into the super bowl what should we know about nick sirianni um that he is a lot smarter
2: than we gave him credit for at the beginning uh i don't know if you've I'm the infamous sure I
0: press conference
2: I I was going to say I'm sure by now you have seen his press conference and of course it it was without question the worst press conference in the history of press conferences and I felt sorry for him because yeah. the circumstances were terrible it was during covid it was done on zoom he was standing alone in a room talking to a bunch of disembodied voices of people he didn't know i mean it was it was not a great setup okay but nick but nick was just so overmatched that day yeah. uh, and when, and when it was over I mean, the people in the city, the fans, the sports writers, the talk show callers, uh, the uh, the social media, they just killed the guy, killed him. You know, what are we doing hiring this guy? First of all, they didn't know who he was to begin with. You know, he had no real track record to speak of. And then the press conference was just a disaster. So he had to dig himself out of that hole, which took him the better part of his first year. But now I think everybody knows that he's extremely bright, uh, incredibly energetic, uh, and, I mean, comes off a little goofy sometimes. And I mean that kind of in a good way. If goofy can be good, he kind of is. Uh, there's a there's a boyishness about him that uh, at first takes you aback a little bit, but uh, now that we've seen him a little bit, we kind of understand it. But the most important thing, the overriding thing, really, is he connects with his players. I mean, yeah. the players – initially, I think there was a little, who is this guy? But now, I mean, the buy-in is complete. Uh, These guys like him. They play hard for him. They trust him. And, you know, you look at what he's done in two years, pretty remarkable. And, you know, you look at Jeff Lurie's ownership, and you and I have talked about this. You know, Jeff Lurie has owned this team for a while now. He's hired a bunch of coaches. And there really isn't a whiff in the bunch. I mean, they've all had success. There wasn't a single hire reason. What was he thinking? You know, and that's why with Sirianni, as bad as it as bad as it started, the one thing I kept coming back to is, you know, Jeff has never really been wrong with one of these guys. You know, Ray Rhodes had great success. Andy had tremendous success. Uh, Chip Kelly, even though it wound up going off the rails, had success for a couple had a lot of success for a couple of years. And then Doug Peterson, who everybody said Doug Peterson, are you kidding? Won a Super Bowl. Yeah. So when he goes when he goes for Nick Sirianni, I'm well, I've got to give him the benefit of the doubt because in my mind he's never really been wrong. You know what I think about this
0: guy? He's done it again. The coach process in Philadelphia. I will never forget the day that Brandon Staley got the Chargers coaching job and I had him on the phone and Staley told me that if the Chargers didn't offer him the job, remember the sequence the Rams lost in Green Bay in the playoffs on Saturday, on a Saturday of divisional weekend. Then the next day, the Chargers have Brandon Staley in, you know, or he's due at their facility at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And he is supposed to leave at 6 a.m. Monday for Florida to meet with Jeff Lurie and Howie Roseman, to have the marathon session with them, uh, I think on Tuesday morning, if I'm not mistaken, but whatever it was. And the reason why Staley was joking about this, he goes, I just don't know if I had it in me right now after a long season to sit there for 10 hours and have to explain myself. Because he goes, that's what those Eagles interviews are. <laughs> they find out everything about you. And that year, I think I'm right in saying, Ray, it was Nick Siriani, Josh McDaniels. I think those were the final two. But I also think that uh Staley could have been involved had he not gotten the charger job. But he, he was on their radar. Yes, he was. Yeah. But but the thing that is interesting to me about it is that. And again, this sounds kind of strange when you talk about such a high profile job. Well, why wouldn't you interview somebody for 10 hours? Well, the point is, not many people do interviews for 10 hours. You know, they just don't, four or five maybe, but nobody out interviews the Eagles. You know, so, and the only reason I bring that up is because, you know, there was no question in my mind that once they said we really like Nick Siriani. I, I said, well, they have to know everything about them, so it's not they're not seeing something uh, that's wrong. It, it, you know, whether it works out, who knows? But I just I've I respect their interview process. I guess is what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, and you have to, and the results have been yeah been what they are. I mean, they've all the coaches that have come in here have had some success, and and a lot of it, Peter. Is they have to get a sense of, you know, what this guy's makeup is. I mean, yeah. his accomplishments and his X's and O's. That's part of it. But to coach in this town, you gotta have you gotta have something else. You gotta have you gotta have a thick hide, and you gotta have um, just bulletproof self-confidence to survive in Philadelphia. And that's, that's why kind of the what, other day—that's day, kind of what they're looking for.
0: Hey Ray, the other day when Nick Siriani ran down the sidelines and said. I believe to the two alternate officials who told him to get back. The rule in the NFL is for those who don't know, when you go, de- when you leave the coach's box, you can leave the coach's box to do one of two things to throw a challenge or to call a timeout. And when they said, Hey, you can't stay down here, you got to get back. And he ended up calling the timeout. He said to them at that moment, I know what the F I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Because he knew the rule. Right. He, did, he, he could go down there as long as he was doing one of those two things. Right. And I asked him about it afterwards. And he said, well, I, I, I knew the rule. You know, there was no, anyway, whatever. Ray, listen, I really appreciate your knowledge. I appreciate you taking the time. You've enriched my pod. And I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much.
2: It was an absolute pleasure, Peter. Always a pleasure to spend time with you.
0: Our thanks to Ray Dinger for his prescient thoughts. He doesn't have any thoughts that are not prescient, (laughs) but his prescient thoughts about the 2022 Eagles and their shot uh, against San Francisco on Sunday at the link. So, Miles, I want to spend, let's just say, three, four minutes each on these two games coming up. Let's start with San Francisco at Philadelphia. And although I think it's going to be really, really hard because it is for Brock Purdy to go into Philadelphia and to win this game, we all know that. We all know it's going to be ridiculously hard for him to go in and win this game. But I think I would I just remind you and remind everyone of just one thing. And it has to do with Brock Purdy and i think you know i was talking to him the other night after the the game there's a picture in my column jeff darlington snapped it he was leaving and he saw me standing outside the niners locker room and there was uh, i was just chatting with uh, with purdy and he snapped a photo it's kind of a cool photo in which yes. It's, he's one of the very few quarterbacks in the NFL who I can look at eye to eye because he's because <laughs> I'm just as tall. I don't know, I might be half an inch to, uh, shorter than Brock Purdy, but it's damn close. But you know this this just occurred to me you know, about Brock Purdy. And you know so Brock Purdy now has played eight games for the Philadelphia or for the San Francisco 49ers. So he's played eight games. He's played in a couple of really tough environments, obviously, one in Seattle. So he's played eight games. And, and when you say, well wait a second, he didn't start that game against Miami. Well, Jimmy Garoppolo left the game after four minutes, and Purdy played the rest. I, I know that statistically, Brock Purdy is only seven and0 in NFL games, but he's eight and0. come on. So wait. but in those eight games, Brock Purdy has never fumbled. Yes. I just want you to think about that. That that to me is look, we all know Brock Purdy is limited. His arm is average. He's six foot and maybe one half inch, but he looks about six feet to me. Okay. And so and he's pretty mobile in the pocket, but he's very smart. Started 48 games at Iowa State. Had a great conversation last week with Matt Campbell. About how one of the great things that happened to Brock Purdy is that he failed a lot in in college. And that helps a quarterback. George Kittle in my column last week talked about one of the best things that can happen to a quarterback is failure. He's right. And Brock Purdy has failed. And so I asked him about that after this game. Zero fumbles. And, and you know, not in, in you know really takes care of the ball well. And he said, you know. He said, my, I think he said, my fifth, sixth game in college. I went to Austin, Texas, and there was about 100,000 people there. I'm 18 years old. And so he said, I'm used to the hostile environment. Norman, Oklahoma, hostile place. Austin, Mm -hmm. Texas, a lot of these places. Stillwater, Oklahoma, Iowa City. A lot of places that he goes in and he's the enemy. And so I just kind of look at this and I look at Brock Purdy and I think to myself, here's a guy in his last three games against Arizona to end the regular season and the two playoff games against Seattle and against Dallas, six touchdown passes, zero interceptions, zero fumbles. At some point, we're going to say, look, this isn't Mahomes. This isn't Burrow. This is a guy who is the classic game manager who's not going to make the big mistake. He's not going to make maybe as many big throws as you want, but he's not going to make the big mistake, and the game isn't going to be too big for him. That, to me, is what gives San Francisco a chance in Philadelphia. And,
1: and, you know, we talk about game manager as if it's some dirty term, right? I I never have thought that. I, I think that if you are a proper game manager, that means that you're usually playing winning football because it means that you're on time, you're on target, and you don't turn the ball over. And what can a coach want more than that? right other than you know sometimes like you get with Mahomes with Burrow with Allen at times right they make you right even when you call the wrong play and sometimes Brock Purdy can do that too he's shown that ability I mean to me he's almost like game manager plus you know because he can he can do a couple more things for you that look a little bit impressive and so yeah I I think it's going to be tough because Philadelphia has been great all year. That is a great football team. And, and sometimes it feels like they're yeah. a little bit underrated, you know, just because of what it is that they've done. And they've just been consistent and they've been in some tough games and they've had to win them that game against the Indianapolis Colts comes to mind, but we, the great teams figure out ways to win. Right. And, and that's what they've done. They put up an incredible amount of rushing yards, 250 plus, against the Giants in the postseason. You don't see that happen, especially against a division rival, especially against a defensive line that played as well as that defensive line did the week before with the Minnesota Vikings. So I think Philadelphia will win this game, but that doesn't mean I'm saying anything bad about San Francisco, right? Because San Francisco is also a really, really good team. I just think Philadelphia has that extra je ne sais quoi to be great.
0: You know, two other little factoids. One is that Philadelphia has an eight-man rotation on the defensive front. Mm -hmm. And you've got, I I thought, I I really think what Jonathan Gannon does, their defensive coordinator, is really, really smart. He knows Brandon Graham's 35 years old. If Brandon Graham can give him eight good rushes in a game, then let's use Brandon Graham for eight rushes. What happens the other day? Uh, You know, in the playoff game, he sacks Daniel Jones in the fourth quarter. I mean, so you've got eight guys. You know, some of them are the young guys. Look, you know, six, seven years ago, Brandon Graham is playing 50 snaps. Now he's playing 12. Fine. That's what he is right now. Let him be an impactful on 12. That's one thing. And I think the other thing is, so look, I am become a big Jalen Hurts advocate after watching him play and after talking to him a couple of times. And the other night, Miles, this is midnight Saturday in Philadelphia. I'm alone with him uh, in a little hallway outside the Eagles locker room. And, you know, he made it very clear that his shoulder still hurts. And, you know, as I wrote the other day, uh, the least surprising paragraph uh, or the least surprising headline two weeks after whenever this season ends will be uh, Jalen Hurts undergoes shoulder procedure to clean out something uh, projected to be ready for training camp. You right. know, I mean, you, you, you know, he hurt his shoulder against the Bears, yeah. and yeah. five weeks later it still hurts. I doubt that's just going to go away. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But if you could have seen the look in his eye, like, and, and I'll describe this to you. And for people who are not watching this, you know, on an NBC Sports YouTube page, you can just envision, but Jalen Hurts was like, I am not coming out of this, these games. It really reminded me. I asked him about Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. I, you know, did you see him today? No, I didn't see him. You know, his ankle was in bad shape. And I just thought it was so interesting that that's why Jason Kelsey was saying to me, he goes, the word for him is stoic. You know, he's not going to talk to a lot of people about it. He's not going to walk up even to me and say, my shoulder's effing killing me, man. You know, he's not going to do it. He's just going to play football. So I like the Eagles in this game. But, you know, as I wrote this the other day, this is the first year in a long time that all four teams, in my opinion, I could envision any one of them winning the Super Bowl. Let's go to Kansas City now. Cincinnati at Kansas City. Look, uh, I got a lot of reaction to something I wrote in my column. I said, Joe Burrow reminds me of Paulie Walnuts. He (laughs) is just... He is one tough guy who you know is going to rip your guts out and he is going to have no pang of conscience or regret that he just ripped your guts out and left you there on the floor and to me Joe Burrow has the kind of steely presence in all atmospheres Including, I think he had it at the Super Bowl, too. But yeah. unfortunately, he had to survive Von Miller and Aaron Donald at their peak <laughs> right. uh, performance and just couldn't do it and didn't have the line to hold those guys out. But be that yeah. as it may, my feeling is right now, I I don't know how you're stopping Joe Burrow and the Bengals.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I do love a good Sopranos reference, so that's great. Um, but the, the thing that really strikes me about burrow and the Bengals is that they have shown time and time again that they can go on the road and defeat you all Right? people talk all the time you know it's the oh, we'll play them in the parking lot that's cincinnati they will play you wherever wherever it don't matter they don't care what the circumstances are they can be home they can be away yeah. they could be in a neutral site which thank god we don't have for this afc championship game sorry but it's just one of those deals where they don't care. They, they come in with the attitude that they've got to play us. And that has worked for them so far. And I don't really put anything past Patrick Mahomes. You know, uh, Patrick Mahomes, I know, wants to be in right. this game and he wants to win this game. Patrick Mahomes takes things personally. But I think that Cincinnati has the kind of team that can go in there and defeat the Chiefs, whether Patrick Mahomes were healthy or not. And the interesting thing about Mahomes, Peter, is that he suffered a similar ankle sprain in 2019. Uh, at least that's what Andy Reid was saying. And who knows how much truth there is yeah. to that because you don't necessarily want to give your opponent anything, you know, at this point in the week when it's an AFC championship game. But the week after that game in 2019, he was playing the Oakland Raiders. That we then still in Oakland and he threw four touchdowns and you know, had over 440 passing yards. I was covering that game for the Las Vegas Review-Journal at the time, and you couldn't really tell that he had an ankle sprain. All right. So this is somebody who knows how to deal with these kind of injuries and still be great. And like, I think three of those uh, touchdown passes were at least 35 yards. And another was, I think, 27 yards, Travis Kelsey. So he can be all right. And they can win with him even if he doesn't have his full range of mobility. But to think that that's not going to affect him, I I think that would be naive.
0: You know, let's just take one minute because I forgot to get back to this in the top of the pod. Let's just take one minute. Bill O'Brien now in the house in in New England to coach Mac Jones. This, to me, is going to be really an interesting uh, study for this year because, look, the, the Patriots were in the bottom, I think I'm right in saying this, they were in the bottom five in the NFL this year, both in red zone efficiency, third down conversion rate, and total first downs. They regressed badly. And Mac Jones regressed badly from year one to two. Um, I think Bill O'Brien will help. I think Bill O'Brien will really help in basically making Mac Jones understand. Not that Mac Jones doesn't understand this, but in making Mac Jones understand that all the rest of the stuff, forget it. All the outside stuff, forget it. Doesn't matter. Uh, we are going to concentrate on fixing you and in fixing this offense right away. I think he's the no-nonsense guy who Mac Jones needed. I don't know how it'll turn out, but I like this hire for the Patriots.
1: Uh, I, I do too, and I think it is clearly something that they needed to do, right? The whole thing with Matt Patricia, Joe Judge, just reminds me of one of my favorite sayings. Sometimes things are outside the box because that's where they're supposed to be. So you go with a very experienced offensive mind, somebody who has been the Patriots OC before somebody who has coached at college programs and in the NFL, we know he has a history of developing quarterbacks. I think this is one of the best things that they could have done for Mac Jones.
0: Yep. Agreed. Um, say, so miles. Uh, thanks for uh, chopping all of the, Every uh, good story in the NFL this week with me into finely diced little uh, points and little factoids. And I hope that we hit everything and gave um, our listeners, our experiencers, something to think about as we head into a really fun Sunday in the National Football League. My appreciation to you and my appreciation to everyone who experienced the Peter King podcast by Salesforce, or excuse me, presented by Salesforce. And we will be back next week to incredibly begin to look at Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona, because we will know the final two teams. And I think we all agree that nothing would surprise us this weekend. But we will look at and preview Super Bowl 57 and dissect the two championship games next week on the Peter King podcast presented by Salesforce.